Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on Masters in Business, we have a very special foreign affairs edition of our podcast. You know, given everything that's been going on around the world, we have the Chinese currency devaluation. We have Russia invading Ukraine and and annexing Crimea. We're normalizing relations with Cuba. We're in the midst of an enormous policy negotiation about the Iran nuclear deal. I thought it would be a good good time to bring in somebody with a, a broad and deep expertise on foreign affairs. And I was fortunate enough to somehow talk Dr. Leslie Gelb into joining us. Uh, you know, if I read his his curriculum vitae on the air, it would take up the whole 90-minute podcast. He, he, he's... Just an incredibly storied guy. We'll, we get into some of the broader aspects of what he done, what he's done. Uh, started as a uh, just a PhD professor at at a school. Gets recruited by Senator Jacob Javits. Was the U, uh, senator from New York State to the U.S. Senate, uh, and from there the Department of Defense, the State Department, to the New York Times, to the Council of Foreign Relations. Just he called it failing upwards, but let's be honest, the guy is just a, a fascinating, amazing person. Um, uh, General McNamara appoints him to the head of the project that essentially produces the famous Pentagon Papers, which was a broad and deep look at the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. While we're still in the midst of Vietnam, it was sort of a moment of reflection to figure out, hey, what are we doing right and wrong, and what lessons can we learn about this for future military entanglements? His concept of how to um, how to interact with other countries, the limits and uh, positives of projecting both military and economic power. Quite fascinating. What he has to say um, about China is amazing. He, he, he has some insights as to how their military works uh, and where it works and where they've purposefully avoided military entanglements is really quite, quite fascinating. Um, he tells stories about dinners with Fidel Castro and, and presenting to the uh, generals of Cuba, just, just really, really amazing stuff. Uh, I found it absolutely interesting. He he is not without controversy, um, but usually it's for, for good reasons because he says things 
that the powers that be don't like to hear, even though they're fact-based and true and time and again have turned out to be correct. Oh, I left out in the middle of all these jobs. He takes a position um, in the New York with The New York Times as a... Uh, uh, a foreign policy correspondent, and ultimately wins a Pulitzer Prize for his work uh, reporting on Ronald Reagan's strategic defense initiative, uh, an in-depth six-part series. Ironically, here's a guy who never so much has written for a high school paper, writes for the Times, wins a Pulitzer. Uh, just, just incredible. Incredibly accomplished, unbelievably knowledgeable and insightful Given all the things that are going on in the world, all the really major macro uh, situations that are roiling countries and currencies and economies, and of course that impacts the market, uh, what better time is there than today for a conversation uh, with Dr. Les Gelb? So with no further ado, here's our discussion on foreign affairs with Leslie Gelb. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. I have a very special guest, and the timing could not be more opportune. Dr. Leslie Gelb, whose curriculum vitae will take up the entire show <laughs> if I read it, but I will just give you the <laughs> brief overview as to why our guest is so perfect, given everything that's happening in the world uh, these days. Dr. Gelb got his BA and MA from Tufts University before getting his PhD from Harvard in 1964. He then taught uh, government at Wesleyan before Jacob Javits recruited him to become his executive assistant. Javits was uh, the senator from New York and uh, one of my favorites. He ultimately ended up becoming the director of Bureau of Political Military Affairs uh, he was appointed by Secretary of Defense McNamara as director of the project that ultimately produced the Pentagon Papers. He then moved on to the New York Times, where he was a diplomatic correspondent, winning the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory journalism for a six-part series on the Star Wars Strategic Defense Initiative, president of the Council of Foreign Relations, President Emeritus, and the rest of this list is... Too long to go uh, into, author of numerous books on foreign policy. Let me just stop there and say, uh, Dr. Gelb, welcome to Bloomberg. Good to be here. So the timing is really fortuitous. We've been talking about this some time ago, but here we are with all sorts of things happening in Iran, uh, Cuba, China. The, the world has just really been... Um, just going through all sorts of, of changes. Let, let's start with, with your career and from the beginning. How do you end up going from a professor at a college to essentially running the office of a U.S. senator? <laughs> it was a, a miracle. Okay. Uh, you get jobs initially based on connections, who you know where. And when I was doing my Ph.D. at Harvard, I met a lot of people. Some of these people were involved with Republican politics in Congress. And uh, one of these guys heard that Javits was looking for an executive assistant to focus on foreign affairs, international economics, defense, so forth, and recommended me, went to see Javits, and then all the rest of the career kind of flowed from there because 
and this is something your, your business people, financial people will appreciate. There's actually justice, I think, to jobs. If you show you know how to get things done, you're in a 1% at the top. And everybody wants you because it means they don't have to worry about doing it themselves. They give you an assignment and it gets and finished. And it gets done. It gets done at a decent quality. And I demonstrated that. So the rest of the career just flowed almost miraculously and without any planning. I mean, when the New York Times offered me the job as a diplomatic correspondent, I told Abe Rosenthal, who was the executive editor of the Times, I said, I've never even been on a junior high school newspaper. (laughs) And that ultimately, so let's talk a little bit about the Times, although there's a lot of career in between Javits's office and the Times, in between... Um, Secretary of Defense McNamara, was that his uh, title at the time, SecDef? Yes, he was Secretary of Defense. Uh, Appoints you to a committee. The person running the committee, uh, if memory serves correctly, dies in a a plane crash, and you end up taking over uh, that project, or am I misremembering that? It didn't happen that way. My my immediate boss, the Assistant Secretary of Defense, John McNaughton, Mm -hmm. was promoted from that Assistant Secretary job to be Secretary of the Navy. A few days later, he and members of his family died in a crash. Okay. But I was, at the time, director of policy planning in the Pentagon, an o- another office for which I was not qualified. Right. I was 30 years old. And uh, I had that job. But then within weeks of having that job, I was also given the task of doing what became the Pentagon Papers, the history of uh, U.S. involvement in Vietnam. And, and we're going to definitely talk more about Vietnam a little later. You say you weren't qualified, but you were awarded from the State Department the Distinguished Honor Award, which is their highest uh, recognition right. for the work you did. So when you say you I was you in the Defense Department first. Okay. I went from Javits to the Defense Department, and I also got the highest award there, too. So that suggests that perhaps you were somewhat qualified. Or it suggests that they give away the awards too easily. <laughs> okay, so that's the other <laughs> side of the argument. I was trying to give you the benefit of the doubt, and um, well, I'm going to have to go to Wikipedia and rewrite your bio. They give these awards out to... How, how do I get one of those? Can I just apply? Or I don't think they give them out all that often, and to have one both from the Department of Defense and, and from the State Department... Right. Uh, that's a fairly respectable... Right, that's a fairly respectable achievement. So now you essentially oversee the creation of the Pentagon Papers, which details in in tremendous specificity what happened in Vietnam, what the goals were, and and where it went wrong. This was supposed to be an internal study, not released to the public, correct? That's right. And (laughs) I believe there were 15 copies, some of which were leaked, parts of which were leaked to the New York Times. That's right. Ellsberg, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, leaked almost a full set to the Times. He didn't include the four volumes on the secret negotiations. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dr. Leslie Gelb, uh, an expert on foreign affairs and the projection of uh, power and influence around the world. One of the things that you've written that I've always found fascinating is... It's not necessarily just military strength, but it's the underlying economic strength that really has a giant impact on foreign policy. Let's start discussing that. 
What is the role of, of the fundamental economic power of a country to influence its foreign policy? Uh, economics is really now central to power in foreign policy, to power in international relations. Throughout history, it was military power, military force that was the main arbiter of things. Big countries made demands on lesser ones. If they didn't obey, they got cracked. They got, they got defeated on the battlefield. Now, isn't the underlying economic strength of go back to the Romans or the Greeks or whoever we want to look to in history, the ability to field a large, well-equipped, well-fed standing army, isn't that a function of their underlying economy? Uh, the economy, of course, was important in, in, in sustaining a large and effective army, but it wasn't a typical instrument of foreign affairs. When things came to be settled between tribes or nations, it was by force. Mm -hmm. If you look at most international transactions today, there is very, very little force, historically unprecedented little force, between nations. They used to go out and fight each other all the time. Uh, it's very rare now you see one nation attack another nation. Almost all the wars are within nations, within Afghanistan, within Iraq, within Vietnam, and so forth. That's a huge positive development, the amount of wars and, and battlefield skirmishes between countries. So Russia and the Ukraine, that, that's an aberration? Well, Russia uh, isn't in open conventional warfare. They sent in their special forces, and they built up units of, of Russian-speaking Ukrainians, and basically that's how the war is being fought, rather than by main force Russian units. So it was really, they, they sort of fomented a uh, civil rebellion. war. Yeah. Interesting. Right. So, so back to the economy. Here we are in the early decades of the 21st century. Uh, the United States remains uh, the the largest, most significant economy in the world, but China is, despite their recent stock market issues and and their slowdown in their economy, is soon to be the largest economy in the world. How does that play into their ability to project influence right. around the world? See, China is a perfect case of what I'm talking about, because China is the first global power, global great power, not to be a global military power. China has no real military punch worldwide. China's military strength is restricted almost entirely to its borders and to adjacent seas. Now, they're building up their air force. They're supposedly adding all these different carrier and submarine groups. They're taking a lot of their newfound economic wealth and directing some of it to the military. They what are. what does They're that mean? Directing more and more of it to the military, but it's almost entirely in the Asia Pacific region. To become a world military power, you need bases worldwide, and you need the capabilities to move navies and air units around the world. They don't begin to have this. What what does that say to us about China's aspirations that this doesn't seem to be a focus of theirs, at least at present? Well, that's the necessary qualifier, at least at present. What they're doing is what China has done throughout its history, really. 
to make sure that they were the strongest country on their borders. Mm-hmm. And they're shoring that up right now. But they, in the process, they are developing a capability to project their military power further than they ever did before. But they're still nowhere near it. They're a decade or two away from having that kind of capability. Now, I've seen arguments— But just to finish the point, but China counts around the world, Mm -hmm. not because it can apply military force in the Middle East or Africa or whatever. No one even thinks of China militarily in those places, but because of its trade and investments. Is there a lesson there for the United States? Sure. They, they, you look at how much we spend on our military, depending on which study you look at, it's the next 12 or 15 countries combined. Are we hurting ourselves by having uh, a, an overemphasis on, on military spending versus competitors like China? Yeah, it's not the next 10 or 15 uh, total equaling the American total defense now. It's uh, about eight, eight or so. Of the next uh, most uh, uh, still a big number. Yeah, it is. It is a very big number, and the, you know the Chinese military budget probably is in the neighborhood of a hundred twenty-five hundred and fifty billion bucks, and we're still up around five hundred billion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not just that. It's uh, having experience in being able to control military technology, to make it operational. We've been in wars, so our military knows how to use this stuff. China is much less proficient at it. So what does that mean going forward? Is China, because what I'm hearing from you is China is obviously an economic competitor, but not really very much of a military threat to the United States' interests. Yes, but China is ensuring that it controls its borders and the immediate uh, water areas. Uh, And that does mean something because we have allies in that area. Taiwan, Japan. uh, South Korea and so Mm -hmm. forth, Philippines. We have treaties with these countries. And they feel the threat coming from Chinese muscling, Chinese muscling into the islands in the South China Sea and claiming them as part of uh, Chinese territory and the like. But you see, as much as the nations of Asia are turning more and more to the United States for security protection, they don't want to go too far. They don't want to anger China because China is still the most important factor in that part of the world when it comes to trade and investment. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dr. Leslie Gelb, author of many books, winner of numerous awards, including the Pulitzer Prize, currently President Emeritus on the Council on Foreign Relations. Is that correct? Close enough. And and an expert on all sorts of issues related to foreign affairs. Let's start with a really broad question uh, in this segment. Are we entering a new era of diplomacy for the United States? It's a new era of foreign policy generally Mm -hmm. because problems are becoming more and more difficult to solve, not just within our country domestically, but worldwide because major powers don't have anywhere near the power they used to have. 
Now, we used to be able to combine with Europe and get a lot of things done. And now, the problems, as I explained before, are less between nations where you can apply that power, that leverage, more within nations. Uh, they have their own political problems. They have their own civil wars. And it's much more difficult for the power of the United States or China or Russia, whatever, to influence events within countries rather than between them. So so you mentioned Europe. I, I, at one point in time, I, always, uh, I thought of Europe as a great power. You look at the history, at least of, of Western civilization, and first it was Spain, and then it was France, and then it was England, and Europe seemed to be the center of the world. That's not really the case anymore, is it? Now, for hundreds of years, Europe was the center of the world, and that's where power was located. And they went out and they, in effect, ruled the world, conquered all these territories, created colonies and the like. Including us here in the United States. Exactly. And now? Now Europe is a second-tier power at best. Its military punch is far, far less than it has been historically. Uh, you know, Germany used to be one of the great powers of the world, Britain and so forth. But now they're, all, they're really all second-tier. What about what about the EU as an economic power? It's one of the biggest it's economies the, collectively. Right. It's one of the biggest, but it, it doesn't do a very good job of exercising economic power because the damn organization is so bureaucratic. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, it thinks less in terms of using power to accomplish difficult things and more in terms of just getting along without creating problems. Quite, quite fascinating. Let, let me shift gears a little bit on you and talk about oil. I, I, I understand the whole economic thesis that strong economy equals strong um, projection of power. Let me ask a question this way. Is the price of oil driving policy or is policy driving the price of oil? Well, in the case of the Gulf states, let's say, they have so much money, they don't have to worry about five extra dollars per barrel or 25 extra dollars per barrel. They're loaded. Mm -hmm. So their primary concern is foreign policy. So why is the price of oil as low as it is? It's as low as it is because they're keeping it that way. And they're keeping it that way in anticipation of Iran joining the oil market again in a major way. Mm -hmm. And they want to make sure that Iran can't put its hand on as many bucks as the Iranian leaders may, may hope. Uh, so they're keeping it low. They realize that Iran is going to have more money and therefore more impact, but they want to lessen that blow. And I, Iran has been a little bit of a troublemaker in the Middle East, uh, to say the least. Yes, Iran has been a troublemaker, but if you ask me, mm -hmm. uh, Saudi Arabia has caused the United States far more trouble over the last 30, 40 years than Iran has. So let's let's I mean, focus let, on let, that. Let, That's let, fascinating. Yeah, let, me, let me just explain that because most Americans just aren't aware. Who on earth funded all these jihadis, al-Qaeda, ISIS, al-Nusra? Where did these funds come from? Where did the arms they've been fighting with come from? They come mainly from Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries. They've been financing it. They've been creating the problem, our, our big partners there from that part of the world. 
for their own uh, their own reasons, usually religious reasons, and their uh, their opposition to Western values. And you see this most clearly in the thousands of madrasas. Mm-hmm. These are Islamic schools funded by the Saudis and other Gulf states around the world. And they preach extreme fundamental versions of, uh, of Islam. Right, and anti-Americanism and anti-American values. So in the last minute we have in the segment, why do we think of Saudi Arabia as our ally? Because our government lets them get away with it and doesn't make an issue of it. But, you know, it's a fact that the arms that ISIS used at first came uh, were financed by the, the Saudis and the other Gulf states. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My special guest today is Dr. Leslie Gelb, an expert on foreign policy and foreign affairs and the impact of a domestic economy uh, and how it affects a country's ability to project power. Last segment, we talked a little bit about uh, this new era of diplomacy. Before, Before we go back to Iran, let's talk a little bit about Cuba, which I think was a surprise for a lot of people. No one really expected anything uh, from a lame duck president, and yet there seems to be a lot of diplomatic uh, initiatives that are starting to bear fruit. What What are your thoughts on our change of status with Cuba? Well, I'm glad we're doing it. Overdue? Yeah, way, way, way overdue. And the only thing that prevented it, really, was the power of the Cuban American Foundation. A uh, group run by uh, Cu- Cuban emigres who really locked on Cuba policy in many ways like the uh, American Jewish community locked on Middle East policy and on Israel. So they, the, the Cuban American Foundation prevented our, uh, doing any kind of opening with Cuba when it didn't make any sense. They're here for 50 years. Right. We had economic sanctions against them. We tried to tighten the noose around them in every way possible. It doesn't work. Economic sanctions can hurt a country, and sure, it's hurt Cuba a great deal, but it can't bring them to their knees. It can't make them capitulate. We face the same issue with Russia and Ukraine, and we never learned the lesson. And uh, when the economic sanctions don't work, people start talking about, well, maybe we have to go to war. Now, haven't the economic sanctions worked with Iran? Didn't we get them to really dramatically reduce their nuclear program or or not? What What's the take on that? We got them to dramatically reduce it, which is why I think this agreement is a good one. We can come back to that later. Okay. Uh, we did get them to dram- dramatically reduce it uh, for 10 to 15 years, unless there's cheating and there's a breakout or so forth. So, so let, let's talk, go back to the sanction issue. You have a group in America, the, a number of different Cuban-American groups who don't want to see relations normalized. Is the reason for that they have a degree of power and a voting block, and once this goes away, their power goes away? At what point do they just become a self-defeating, self-sustaining-for-no-more-purpose political group? It takes too long for that to happen. Well, here it is half a century later. What 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 are we yeah. to make of either of the the Cuban American group or the Jewish American group yeah. affecting these sort of policy yeah. negotiations? Well, you know, uh in 1994-95, mm-hmm. 
my wife and I were invited by Fidel Castro to Cuba. And um, we had dinner with him one night, the two of us, he and his foreign minister, whatever. And uh, we, were, we were talking about uh, what democracy was. And uh, I interrupted him, and I said, you know, you don't understand that democracy is minorities' rule. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Jewish-American groups are the primary influence on Middle East policy, the Greeks on Greek policy, the aged on uh, Elder. uh, elderly. Mm-hmm. Um, the um, That's uh, fascinating. That's a fascinating gun, way gun to describe lobby, it. The gun lobby controlling guns. You look issue to issue, who controls uh, financial legislation? It's Wall Street. And that American democracy is, is minorities rule. Well, so what is said, Castro's so Castro reaction said, to that? He said, you see, that's what I'm talking about. You don't have a democracy. Yes, I said, but we do because we have the power to change the minorities who do rule. And that can't be done here in Cuba. You're the minority and you can't be changed. He's a minority of one versus yes, exactly. versus an open. That's a fascinating, fascinating insight. What what else took place in that uh, conversation with uh, Fidel Castro that was memorable? Well, I think almost almost all of it was memorable. But the the sense that look, he is a dictator and he's done some terrible and, things. And, and now his country, brother running the country, running the country. also a, a dictator. Yes, and they put a lot of innocent people away. And there's no disregarding that. And they did foment revolutions and Latin America. Mm-hmm. Some people thought those revolutions were good. Others thought they were terrible. They certainly weren't liked by the United States. So I, I'm not making any excuses for Castro. Uh, but they they are really afraid that the United States was going to conquer them, mm-hmm. come attack them. And they had you know plenty of reason to believe that. For Castro was well aware of all the attempts that we made on his life. Mm-hmm. Um, another meeting we had was with the Cuban chairman of the Joint Chiefs, of their Joint Chiefs of Staff, who gave a long spiel to my wife and me about how they believed we were still going to attack them, full-scale American still, invasion. Still to this day. Yeah. And when he finished, I said, I think there is no chance the United States of America is going to invade Cuba. And then I gave him the reasons why. He started to cry. He stood up. Like weeping, ar- like tears. Yes, and he came around the table to hug me. Really? Now, you know. That's fascinating. I, I, I don't believe that was an act. I believe he really thought the United States was going to invade Cuba. That That's absolutely amazing. So we're speaking with Dr. Leslie Gelb, expert on foreign affairs. Let's shift a little bit to Iran. I, I don't get the sense that any of the Mullers are going to be hugging anyone from the United States Anytime soon. They won't. The Mullahs are very dangerous guys. Really? Sure they are. So who's driving the atomic desires in in Iran? I think that the Iranian people, from everything we know, from all the reporting we have going on in that country, Iranian people support a peaceful nuclear program. Do they really need that given their vast oil reserves? Well, they think they do. Mm -hmm. Who are we to say they don't? I think we could legitimately say, not only do you have vast oil reserves, you're in the middle of the desert, near the equator. If you want to set up solar farms, you probably have more energy than you could ever consume in a thousand years. Why on earth would you need a nuclear program because they think except to is, build a bomb? They think this is a cheap form of energy. They, they can 
They're worried about being able to sell oil in the future as energy um, sure. uh, sources change. That's a 50-year concern. Yeah, uh, but they, they are concerned about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, everything we know from the reporting countrywide is that there is considerable support for having these nuclear peaceful programs. Uh, not that the, the people are calling for Iran to have nuclear weapon. There's no evidence of that at all. None. And even the Ayatollah, who we don't like and really is a troublemaker, uh, keeps repeating they don't want to build a bomb. So what do we think I is don't gonna... believe them, by the way. Oh, but... <laughs> I, I, I don't think a lot of people uh, yeah. believe that claim. What do we think the odds uh, of this treaty actually getting passed doesn't require approval from the Senate. Uh, all they could do is stop it. Do we think that this is actually going to be put into effect? Chuck Schumer notwithstanding. Yeah, I, I think that before Schumer announced his opposition, that they did a vote count in the Senate, mm-hmm. and they came to the conclusion that a presidential veto to bring the treaty into force would be sustained. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Schumer's vote was not going to. Uh, so there was a little political horse trading, and well, I don't know. There was horse trading, but uh, Schumer could go ahead and make his announcement, which I think wasn't based on much substance, uh, without fearing that he was going to kill the treaty off. And and he's appealing to one of those minorities, the Jewish American yeah, lobby, that's been them. very vocal about this deal. They've made it an enormous issue, and it's going to hurt. Israel standing here in the United States. Really? Including with people who oppose the agreement. It will, because they've gone too far in interfering in American politics. Benjamin Netanyahu speaking in the UN, exactly. speaking to the, on the floor of the Senate. You, you think that boomerangs back against Israel? Eventually it will hurt, yes. So we talked briefly before about oil, and let me pose a different foreign affairs question. You know, the United States has been a huge importer of of oil for a long time. And now between what we've found in the Gulf and fracking and we're rapidly approaching the day where the U.S. becomes energy independent. And and I'm not talking a century or many, many decades. Sometime in the next, call it five to ten years, we're going to become a net exporter of energy. When that happens, what does that do to our interests in the Middle East. I hope it lessens our interest in the Middle East because I don't, as you could tell from other things I've just said, uh, place much uh, hope or reliance on our Gulf state allies. They've done us some great harm. And I think we've done- you, you're, When you say Gulf state allies, you mean Saudi Arabia, Israel, and, no, and who I mean, else? I don't mean Israel. Just Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Kuwait, United Arab Emirates and the like, the people who have funded these jihadis all over the world. Where do you think the Taliban got their arms and money from? They got it from heaven? They didn't get it from heaven. So with friends like these, who needs enemies? Indeed. So if in the last 30 seconds we have, if people want to find your writings, where's the best place for them to to see your your views and your perspectives? In two places. One is the Daily Beast. Mm Mm-hmm. I've written a lot for them over the last uh, eight or nine years or so, and in the National Interest magazine. Fantastic. We've been speaking with Dr. Leslie Gelb, discussing foreign policy. 
If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out the podcast extras where we let the tape roll and we continue the conversation. Uh, check out my daily column at BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast extras. Dr. Gelb, or less as you've asked me to call Please. you, thank you so much for doing this. This is really absolutely fascinating. There's so many things I want to go over. We haven't even talked about what's happening with China and their currency. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Let's go back to the Pentagon Papers, which we really just quickly touched on. Describe what that process was like creating that, what sort of hell broke loose when the Times got their hands on it, and what it meant for the Supreme Court to issue their no prior restraint decisions, if, if, if yeah. I'm remembering all those things uh, you are. correctly. So, so let's start with creating the Pentagon Papers. How, what was that process like? Well, it's not like uh, you hear about it because uh, McNamara at first started the project to answer 100 questions that he and a few other people had set down. About 10 of those questions were historical. Mm -hmm. And the others were about the pacification program, about the political process in Saigon, and could it work, and so forth. There were 100 questions that one of his military aides wrote out by hand. Really? Yeah. And we were to answer them. Then I put together a small group, and basically everyone agreed that we'd give the same kind of baloney, superficial answers to these questions if we just sat down to, to write them. And to get some perspective on it, we ought to look at the history of our involvement. Sent a memo into McNamara. He said, go do it. Let the chips fall where they may. Really? Yeah. So we started to do these monographs. And basically the monographs, which very few people have read, are sort of straight recounting of the issue. There's one on pacification that sort of tells you document by document, summarizing them, what the history of how we handled pacification was or why we made the decision to send in the Marines in March 65 and so forth. And the only sort of analytical parts of the Pentagon Papers were the brief summary statements at the beginning of each monograph, which I took the credit or blame for in my transmission document. And I did so because most of our authors were military, and they didn't want to get stuck right. with, uh, with having an opinion on this and that to their superiors. So I, I took responsibility for writing all those uh, analytical statements, which really weren't very analytical or, or very pr presumptuous. They're put more or less straightforward. So, so within that, within the research and, and creation of the Pentagon Papers, the question that I mean, I was born in 61. The Vietnam War, as a kid, was always a background thing. Right. And the question that, to this day, I still can't answer is, so why did we really go in there? What, what was the point That's of— That's the key question, because it applies today, too. Look, Ellsberg created the impression that we got in because our government lied to the American people about the stakes and what was involved and why it was important. But that's just— False. It's plain wrong, I including Ellsberg himself. Ellsberg himself was a big supporter of the war. 
mm-hmm. through a good chunk of the 60s. He joined the Marines. He went over there and he fought. Uh, the reason we got involved in Vietnam, and it's critical that we understand it for what we get into trouble with today, the reason we got involved is we believed our way into the war. We saw Indochina as the cockpit of the war between Soviet Union and Chinese communism against the United States of America. When you and, say we believed our way in. Yes, we thought the biggest threat to the United States was from the, from the Chinese-Soviet alliance mm-hmm. and from world communism. And just as we saw Berlin as the major focal point for this in Europe, we saw Indochina as the major focal point in Asia. And people believed we had to stop. I hardly knew anybody in the foreign policy profession who differed with it, including Dan Ellsberg, including my buddy David Halperstam. Really? His 1964 book, The Making of a Quagmire, ends with a chapter that is the best argument for the domino theory I've ever read. Really? Yeah, so we believed our way into the war. But wait, so he he argues for the domino theory, meaning that if we don't stop them here, it'll be country after country until it's at our doorstep, and yet the book is about... In 1964, that's pretty early to say, hey, Vietnam is going to be a quagmire. And and for the next decade, it was. Indeed it was. And how important it was to win. Now, David's views changed over time, David Halberstam's, Mm -hmm. uh, as did mine. I was a supporter of the war. Uh, I didn't know anything about Vietnam, but to me it was the crunch point in the battle against communism. And it took a, a, a long time for me to evolve. It took a very long time for my foreign policy profession to evolve because we believed in it. The same thing happened with how we fight Afghanistan or how we fight Iraq. We believe our way into these wars because we make these decisions without knowing about the countries we're getting involved in. Mm-hmm. You know, <clears throat> on Vietnam, I had read one book. I, I wrote a good many of the memos of the Secretary of Defense to the President of the United States when I was Director of Policy Planning in the Pentagon. And I had read one book on Vietnam, Bernard Falls, The Two Vietnams. Mm -hmm. And that was more than most people there had read. We had no knowledge of the place. The same applied to Afghanistan. The same applied to Iraq. All of a sudden, we throw in the troops as if force is going to solve centuries Uh of culture, politics, and internal problems. And it never does. So, so let's. I want to come back to Iraq in a minute. Let Let's stay with um, Vietnam for a second. So, if the theory is that we're containing communism, and therefore we have to project power all around the world to prevent the domino theory, doesn't that say we really don't have a belief, a strong belief, in our own system of capitalism and free markets and open trade? Isn't because uh, that's how I, I always am astonished at the stop communism argument. Well, if our system is so vastly superior, and I think history has shown that it is, why can't we allow the system itself to support itself? Why can't the benefits of free markets stand on their own without military invention interventions mm-hmm. all around the world? creating this very, very different sort of 
battle. Uh, it's an economic battle, not a military battle. Or is that the wrong way to look at this? Well, it depends on the country. In the case of Vietnam, it was uh, nationalism that we were fighting. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the root cause of it. You know, uh, I was very close to an Army officer who went out and commanded an air cavalry battalion mm -hmm. in one of the main battles that was fought in the central highlands of Vietnam. When you say air, air cavalry, I, I think of Army. Apocalypse Now, helicopters, that's, ground troops, that's PT boats, the whole thing. Yeah. And he was the commander of a battalion. He was a mm -hmm. lieutenant colonel at the time. And he wrote me a note. I was working for Javits at the time. He wrote me a note saying we, we just had the f first major battle with uh, North Vietnamese forces in the central highlands of South Vietnam. And I can't tell you how proud I was of, uh, of my troops, how well they fought with such skill and such courage. There was only one problem. The North Vietnamese fought better. And there are only two explanations for this. One is they were on dope, and the other is they were on nationalism. And if they were on nationalism, boy, are we going to have trouble. They're defending their own home country. Yeah. And there's an advantage to that. And Ho Chi Minh was regarded by many Vietnamese as the father of Vietnamese nationalism. Uh, you know, I don't like his communist system or anything like that, but he had the monopoly of nationalism, not only in the north, but in the south with the Vietnam, Viet Minh forces mm -hmm. who were also backing him. Mm -hmm. And when that's what you have going for you, it's hard to deal with it. Look at look at Syria today. You have these fanatics fighting, and the people we trained for years in Iraq and armed with the best of armaments. As soon as the ISIS attacked them, they dropped their arms. They ran away. took their uniforms off and ran away. So, so let's apply the lessons of Vietnam to Iraq. First question is, same question as Vietnam. Why did we go into Iraq? Nobody really believes the weapons of mass destruction. That was... Well, I wouldn't say that that's so. You know, I, I, I was very friendly with George Tenet, who was the director sure. of the CIA at the time. And I asked him outright at the time, uh, do we have a smoking gun on the weapons of mass destruction? And he said, no, we don't have a smoking gun, but all of us very much believe that they do have these... Weapons of mass destruction programs. Say, believed our way into another war? Is that, yeah, is that what we're saying? We did believe it because here Saddam had attacked Iran. We didn't like Iran, mm. but they attacked him. And it was a seven-year war. Right. And they used chemical weapons against Iran. They, they've been using chemical weapons, though, for a long, long time, you, haven't well, they? Well, they did have a record of it. They also used chemical weapons against their own Kurdish people. Right. They, and they had just invaded Kuwait, and we had to fight to kick him out of Kuwait. That was ninety one or ninety three, right, something under like that. George W. Uh, George H. W. Bush. Right. So, so we so, knew he was hostile. We knew he was aggressive. Right. And there was genuine concern that he had these weapons of mass destruction. Was there proof? No, but there was enough evidence floating around in combination with his behavior over the previous ten years plus to make people feel. You had to go after him. Now, they didn't take the next step, which they mu must 
take in order to have a rational policy and say, then what are we going to then, do? Right. What How are we going after? to conduct this war? Right. Uh, nobody doubts for a second that the United States military isn't going to steamroll over exactly. the National Guard. But after that, and, and now the current thesis that I keep hearing is ISIS is essentially the reconstituted uh, Saddam troops and weaponry that laid low for a few well, we years. We don't even know that. We know that some of Saddam's officers mm -hmm. are involved with them, but that these are you know Sunnis who escaped from Iraq and are now Syrians uh, fighting for ISIS. I think that's exaggerated. So, so this brings us back to the original question. September 11th happens in, in 2001. Yes. We go after Afghanistan, which is where these attacks um, come from. By the way, you mentioned our friends, the Saudis, funded a lot of the uh, uh, Taliban. Uh, not only the Taliban, but a lot of the hijackers themselves were Saudis. Oh, yes. So, so they were very much yes, involved. Indeed. So we go into Afghanistan, and then somehow, not to, by 2003, we tax some somehow we change and shift our focus to Iraq. Yes. Uh, was was that a prudent either d foreign policy or military response to where we were at the time? It was dumb, and I uh, endorsed <laughs> it at the time. So you, you, you endorsed it, but now you're saying that was a I, mistake. I, after three months, and I saw... That's the fastest reversal have, of everybody it who was, supported. It was fast, but I was for it initially. And when it was clear they didn't have the weapons of mass destruction, I opposed it. And on top of it, I saw we had no idea what we were doing. Clearly, there had been that, no plan for fighting the war. That that's so. So it seems you know it's it's funny. There's a a joke about people in finance, and and it it's essentially says. Um, Notor people in finance are notorious for refusing to learn from experience in history. Yes. But I, it sounds like finance people don't really hold a candle to military There's people. No, nothing like and foreign policy people in making mistakes. The same is, mistakes. The same mistakes over and again, which is why uh, over time I developed the philosophy that guides me in thinking about foreign affairs, that you're going to make the mistakes they're inevitable. I don't care how smart you are, mm -hmm. because we're involved in various parts of the world where our knowledge is slight and where our power doesn't add up to our desires. And we're going to make mistakes. And the most important thing you can do is keep your mind open to the possibility that you did make a mistake so that you can see it and fix it and not uh, cause the blunders and the suffering that we do when we persist in our mistakes. So speaking of persisting in mistakes, let me ask you a question. Which was worse, the eras in Vietnam or the eras in Iraq? Um, I think Vietnam really was. Uh, you know, we, we lost over 50,000 men killed. Ten times what we lost in Iraq. And people forget, but we had 550,000 troops in Vietnam. And nearly all draftees, not a whole lot of voluntary conscripts. Absolutely. That's a very different war than sending 100,000 people who are volunteers uh, to another country. Absolutely. And the ramifications domestically to the Vietnam War looks like it was very, very significant. Iraq has created some pushback, but nothing like what we saw in the 1960s. 
I think that's right. Sixties really was a revolution inside the United States. And frankly, I think it caused a lot of people to good people to stay away from politics. I don't think the quality of people who run for office today, hold office today, are as good as they were when I was a young man in Washington. You know, it's funny. Let's shift gears and talk about politics a little bit. So I grew up in Nassau County, uh, out in Long Island, very Republican area, and Jacob Javits was my senator. And whenever I try and describe, and, and people on the left and right, none of my friends believe me, but it's absolutely true. I describe myself as a Jacob Javits Republican, all right? And four quick bullet points. Low taxes, balanced budgets, no overseas adventures, and keep the government out of people's bedrooms. That's a pretty, pretty fair statement, those four— uh... No, because he actually was uh, pretty much of a hawk on foreign policy. He was a big supporter of the Vietnam War until I... late in the game. Well, when I, got to, when I learned who he was, he, he had reversed himself, right. and following the Vietnam War— I recall him saying things like, look, if we're going to project power, if we're going to go to war overseas, it can't be for some abstract theory. It has to be to protect uh, the United States and not. So I didn't I was too young to know him when he was a hawk. I knew him as no overseas misadventures. Yeah, he became the author of the uh, of the law that sort of gave Congress a chance to say no to. Uh, military involvement after 30 days. That that's how I know him, as opposed to maybe how he began when I when I was a much much right. younger uh, child. But the funny thing about that corner of politics, that on the spectrum, uh, uh, a fiscally conservative, socially progressive, call it center right political position, you can't find that amongst the Republicans anymore. The whole spectrum has shifted so much that what was once a center-right possession, position now seems like it's a left-wing position. Yes. Uh, so what does that say? How much does that traces to the reaction, the pushback to, to Vietnam socially, and just the parties becoming more extreme? And from my perspective, formally thinking I'm center-right and suddenly finding myself center-left— to me, it looks like the the right wing has gotten the left wing has gotten some extreme elements, but the right wing looks like it's really tacked to an extreme um, political position. Some of which is the Reagan coalition starting to fracture, and people um, really tacking to that far right base to to get. We see it in the the yes. primary part. By the way, that's the most uh, you're going to hear me say about anything this whole interview but i'm really curious as to your view on how the this political spectrum in the united states has has shifted yeah we always had nuts on the left and the right (laughs) okay Uh, when i worked for for javits they were there to be sure but they were kind of marginalized here's the difference that not that they were marginalized it's that they were what i would call 25 or so national interest senators of both parties Mm -hmm who, if an issue were really important, would put politics aside right. and try to get something done. So if it was critical and you needed a, a law passed that, in order to solve a problem, they would get together and do it. So what happened to that sort of— It disappeared. You see, they all left. You so know, it's party first, like country Bill second. Bill Bradley, Sam Nunn, sure. et cetera, et cetera. 
you centrist, Scott, moderate, Chuck rational Percy, guys. They they all left the place because they got totally frustrated with American politics, and it began at the time of the Vietnam War. The people who unfortunately didn't get frustrated were the extremists, particularly on the right. Uh, they decided that this was their great opportunity to go in and control politics. And they've been fairly successful. Yeah, including in defeating moderate conservatives. Which is astonishing to think that that battle between the right and the far right is being won by the far right. That's not usually... It's always been the the center holds, and, and that's right. where the power lays. But that seems to be changing. They won it hands down except for presidential nominees, uh, Reagan being the exception people bring up. But in fact, Reagan was not a crazy right-wing president at all. He was a conservative president. Uh, the not argument a, is Not that, a nut by any means. The, the argument is that Reagan couldn't get nominated today. I don't think he could. That that's an astonishing. <laughs> that's an astonishing. He raised taxes, remember? Repeatedly. <laughs> yes. Well, f- let's. He he first he had a huge tax cut. He took that top rate way down. He got rid of all those crazy, you know, tax shelters and real estate shelters and all those things, which is why some guy named Donald Trump was not happy with him right. way back when. Um, but slowly raised taxes to balance the budget. You know, today you have the pledge. Uh, you have Grover Norquist. You so that center right, moderate, or, or or even just ordinary conservative, they don't seem to really be finding a voice um, in politics today. That's true. Interestingly, they're divided on foreign policy, national security, where you have the uh, the Tea Party guys like uh, the Pauls. Mm-hmm. Who, who tend to be uh, touch isolationists. Very much get so. involved in wars. In fact, he ISIS caused Rand Paul to back off of that. Yes. Um, but they're very much isolationists, and I, I respect the, hey, we're spending way too much on the military argument from Ron Paul. Um, Rand Paul seems to have less of a commitment to that than his father did. Less uh, because he's running for president, mm-hmm. uh, and he thinks he's got to modify it for that, I think, for that reason. His dad but, ran for president and never changed anything. His dad was a more of a true believer. Mm-hmm. So, so the let's son come, is more of a politician. To, uh, to say the least. So so let's come back to um, the Middle East policy. We, we talked about Iraq. Um, what's going to happen with our relations going forward with Israel? Um, are they going to be chastened by their overreach? Is there? Are they going to have a possible change yeah. of leadership? What What happens? Are, there's no chance of a change in leadership. <laughs> Netanyahu's position inside Israel Solid. is very strong. Yes, and there is overwhelming opposition within Israel mm-hmm. to this agreement with uh, Iran, and none of that is going to to change. Obama has tried to compensate by offering Israel some arms, some mm-hmm. high-tech arms that he had previously denied them, but that's not going to change their mind about any of this. And we're going to go through uh, a few years of just very nasty talk from Israeli leadership about Democrats because of their support for this. Uh, Hillary is trying to avoid it by, as usual, not taking a position, strong position on it. 
but uh, you'll, you'll get a lot of anti-democratic feeling from Israelis. As far as American Jews are concerned, uh, the polls show 60 to 70 percent are in, in favor, favor of supporting the treaty this, yes. with Iran. And about 20 to 25 percent are opposed to the it. The hardliners are yes. very much against it. So if you have 60 to 70 percent of, of U.S. Jews disagreeing with Israelis supporting President Obama, what does that mean for the odds of this policy, this this um, uh, treaty actually becoming uh, the law of the land? Well, I, I think it will. At least the people who do the vote counting say that a presidential veto will be sustained in the Senate. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the House, but in the Senate. That's really the only place that matters. If yes, you can't override it in both houses, that's it. This becomes that's law. Right. Is there any chance down the road that there's a detente between Israel and Iran? Is that something that's possible? Not for a long time to come. Uh, look, I, I've spent a good deal of my life working on arms control, uh, even though I didn't believe arms control was arms control. I think arms control was a way of managing mm-hmm. relations with an adversary. Right. And if you look at the history of all the arms control treaties we reached, they didn't solve the problems. They minimized the problems to varying degrees. They lessened the problem. Or they put the most serious problems off into the future where there was a better chance of managing them. We've kind of forgotten that arms control uh, agreements are not... uh, uh, agreements of surrender by one party to another. Mm-hmm. You're you're trying to bargain with another state that has its own interests and is not going to give certain things up. And you make agreements to lessen the threat, which this agreement absolutely does. Mm-hmm. Even the critics say the main point is, well, in 10 to 15 years, they can decide they don't want to abide by this anymore. It's then 15 they can years from them. now. Okay. That's a long time right. for As us opposed to, to Tuesday. Exactly. And that's the central point to keep making to people, but it's hard to get through when the hysteria has reached the proportions it has. There certainly are histrionics coming out, and it's in a, coming up on a presidential election year, which just amplifies that Absolutely. even more. All right, so let's let's shift gears, and I'm going to take you to a different part of the world. Let's talk about Russia and the Ukraine. So you, you had said previously that they had set up Russian, uh, Ukrainian-speaking Russians and special forces within Ukraine and were fomenting civil dissent. Yeah, they caused the problem. There is no question The, the Russians. Yes. What's their end game? What does Putin want? He got Crimea. What does he want from Ukraine? Yeah, I think what, what he wants is to establish Russia again as a major power and uh, wants to be treated as a, as a major power. Are, are, is and, Putin not treated as a major power? I think is, that there's a lot to show from a Russian point of view mm-hmm. that we diminish them. And we diminish them in all sorts of ways. Certainly economically. Economically, including in Ukraine, where uh, the Europeans made a proposal, in effect, to incorporate Ukraine into the European economy. Mm-hmm and uh, push Russia aside. It's intolerable, to, to, given to Russian history and to somebody like Putin. Right. The, the central thing about Russians in foreign policy for hundreds of years is they like to flex their muscles. They like to be the great power. They like to be treated like the boss. 
and they lost the Cold War. The country was diminished in size and in power. And stature, for and, sure. And, and all these respects. And then, you know, here we do this with Ukraine. We bring the Baltic states into NATO. These are states that used to be part of sure. the Soviet Union. And now they're under NATO. Uh, it looked like we were going to bring Georgia and Ukraine into NATO as, as well. And I think Putin has been fighting against all of this. Now, I wouldn't give him the right. These countries don't belong to him. Sure. But as a great power, he has a right to a say in those countries and what happens there, just as we would have a right uh, uh, to uh, to what happens in our hemisphere. People have forgotten about the Monroe Doctrine, sure, which is a pretty blatant assertion of U.S. Uh, authority and rights in the hemisphere. What if China would open up military bases in Mexico? What do you think we would do about that? We would not. We be would happy. go insane. Right. <laughs> so. You have to understand it from Putin's point of view. The second thing you have to understand is that on their western borders, Russia has military superiority over the United States in the West. Sure. You see, people don't know that, though. Um, I, about six I, I've read ago, about World War II. The Germans, if they weren't, if Hitler didn't attack Russia, the outcome could have been very different. Oh, there's no question about it. But here, Today, people think, you know, Russia is on its knees, on its borders, western, western borders. Thousands of with tanks. With Ukraine, yes, aircraft, air defenses, whatnot. A couple of months ago, the, uh, the Supreme Allied Commander for NATO, General Breedlove, American general. Oh, sure. He was on Christiane Amanpour. On CNN. He, on CNN, and he was saying this to her. That they have a massive military might on the western border. And they can trump us militarily, whatever we do. We want to put more aid to Ukraine. They can put even more to their supporters Mm -hmm. in eastern Ukraine. Uh, You want to start shooting bullets? They can shoot more bullets right on their borders. Beyond their borders, we have the superiority. But on their borders, they've got it. And Christian uh, responded when he was finished, wow. No idea. She said, no idea. She said, wow. If you if you know World War II history, and I don't call myself a military history buff, but I read Keegan's book, and I read a lot of the big um, uh, fascinating stories about what took place. Not too long ago, I was in St. Petersburg. Un, you know, you see some of the old uh, memorials and, and what took place there. Russia always has had a massive... European-looking military force. They, they have. Let me tell you the end of that conversation now. Mm-hmm. She says, wow. And then she says, but then what would you do about it? He said, well, of course, we've got to keep up our military strength, but we need diplomacy. This if is you, a general saying this to Yes, the general. And I've had loads of conversations with uh, senior NATO generals. They all say the same thing. You need diplomacy. You need to work out a, a, a kind of relationship with the Russians, where they are treated like a major power. You don't give them the Baltic states or Ukraine, but you take their interest into account. Look, is this how, really- do you, how do you judge whether Russia matters? Russia is no longer a global superpower, but they are a great power. And how do you measure that? You measure it in terms of whether Russia can help or hurt us in various parts of the world. And they can. Who can help us? more than any other country in dealing with what's happening in Syria and Iraq. 
It's Russia mm-hmm. fighting terrorism. Russia has one of the best anti-terrorist operations in the world. Really? Intelligence. Absolutely. Now that I'm going to say wow about. In terms of nuclear proliferation, Russia is a major partner of ours. Look, they just did it with yeah. Iran. They, they, By the way, fascinating the Russian interest in Iran and how much they were really a key actor in helping that treaty move forward. They were, they were central to it. And in the case of the states on their western borders, they can hurt us unless you have some diplomacy that takes their interest into account, doesn't give them control of these countries, but gives them a say so that they're treated like a major power, like we would expect to be treated on our borders. So given, you know, if it would have been a president like George Bush, who wasn't a big believer in in diplomatic efforts, I would say, well, of course we're not having any luck with Russia. But the present administration, Iran, Cuba, elsewhere, um, although we seem to not be very successful with China uh, on certain diplomatic efforts, why isn't this administration recognizing what generals like Breedlove says and, Mm -hmm. and paying, look, no one expects the United States to pay homage to Putin, but it sounds like He's looking for some respect, some recognition, and some input into the decision-making process. Given how helpful he was in Iran, why aren't we having a better engagement and better relationship with Russia? Good good question. There, there are a lot of people inside even this administration who think they can knock Russia to the floor. Well, what's the upside of that? Why? Uh, why? You know, I think they're just dead wrong, but there are people inside— and people they consult on the outside who have this point of view. And not all generals agree with Breedlove. The new chairman of the Joint Chiefs, and testifying before the Senate uh, a few weeks ago, said that Russia is the biggest threat, security threat to the United States. So you have people who say these things, and then they don't say what they're going to do about it. Right. Practically. You know, the... Um in St. Petersburg, there's a memorial to the civilians. During World War II, the Germans encircled the city, which is really very much on the western border. It's long before they went deep into the Russian winter further further east. And they tried to starve the city out. And I'm trying to some ungodly number of civilians died in St. Petersburg. Just insane, insane numbers. And the Russians, these are really tough people. They didn't—it uh, went a year or two. They didn't surrender. They didn't give up. They kept the Germans at bay. Not a lot of cities could have survived what the Germans put St. Petersburg through. Absolutely. Anyone who thinks that you're going to just shove the Russians over and they're going to topple, uh, you just have to read military history. Yeah. That ain't going to happen. Do you need to go back to Napoleon? That's not going to happen. Yeah, but you see, it's not just—it's not just Russia. It's—we thought we would do it with Cuba. We thought we could do it with Iran, and none of no, economic sanctions, political pressure, even military pressure, did not bring these countries to their knees. And what do people want? Do they want to go to war with Iran? What do they think the consequences of that would be? Did we want to invade Cuba? Only some nuts wanted to invade Cuba. So I only have you for a couple of more minutes. Let me go to some of my favorite few short questions okay. that I ask all my guests 
and then we'll we'll get you out of here on time. Okay. Um, so, aside from Senator Javits, who were some of your early mentors? Well, I would say Clark Clifford, mm-hmm. who replaced McNamara as Secretary of Defense, was a uh, a major influence in my life because he really brought home to me the importance of thinking through strategy before you made your first moves on any area of importance. And if it took two weeks to do it or whatever, you take that time to do it before you start moving. Otherwise, you get you trap yourself. Sounds like sounds like common sense, but uh... it's pure common sense. But it isn't done. <laughs> you can see it time and again in in decisions made by presidents after presidents. So aside from Clifford, let let's talk a little more philosophy. What what thinkers influenced your approach to either foreign policy or yeah. uh, or economics? Yeah, I would say the the realist school. Mm-hmm. Henry Kissinger was my PhD advisor at Harvard. Oh, really? And I was his teaching fellow in his courses there. Uh, and he and had, he's a realist, if if nothing he's a, else. He's a realist, and I think that's basically the uh, the the framework I've adopted in dealing with the with the world. I believe in power. Uh, I don't think you get things done through what what we like to call soft power. Uh, that we persuade people we understand their interests better than they do. Uh, we think our values are going to get them to restrain themselves. It just doesn't happen. Right. It doesn't happen. What happens is power, where you get people to do things or not to do things because you change their calculus about their interests, what mm-hmm. they're going to gain, what they're going to lose. And if you can't affect that calculus, you're not going to be able to achieve what you want. Pure carrot and stick. It's pretty much that, yes. So we talked about the shifts in, in politics. What major shifts have you seen take place in diplomacy, and are these a good thing or a bad thing? Yeah, I don't think we've adjusted to the world of the 21st century. Us in the United States, us, our foreign policy. Approach. Mostly us. Really? Yeah, because we we have more responsibility than any anyone else. If there's any, any problem anywhere in the world, people immediately turn to the United States. And unfortunately, too often, we try to go respond to it without knowing what to do and without thinking through a, uh, Clifford's, a strategy. Clifford's approach, actually, Absolutely. give it real real thought. Um, what what are some of your favorite books that, that have influenced either your thinking or changed your mind about uh, different aspects of foreign mm-hmm. policy? I think mainly uh, history books. Uh, I try to immerse myself in history, mainly to see how things went wrong and on those few occasions how they went right, to give myself more of a finger feel and an intellectual appreciation of the difficulties of dealing with problems that you can't control, where you have to use your power and the power can't make things in and of in and of itself come out the way you want. Let me let me shift up my second to last question. I always ask people um what advice they'd give to a millennial or someone graduating college about their career, but let let me ask you it slightly differently. Uh, someone comes to you just graduating career graduating college and says I'm interested in a career in in uh, the State Department or foreign affairs or diplomacy, what sort of advice would you would you give them? 
I would say first demonstrate to your boss that you know how to get things done, which means you think through a strategy. I'm, I'm sensing a theme here. <laughs> you think through a strategy, and you figure out how to deal with people well enough to move the pieces along so that in whatever it takes a week or three months, your boss sees you've accomplished it. And if he sees that, you're going to get ahead. Last question. What do you know today about foreign affairs, diplomacy, military power, economic might that you wish you knew when you began 50 years ago? I think uh, that I should have had a better appreciation of what our power could accomplish in different places at different times and what it could not accomplish. Limitations on the projection of power. And what you could do, too. What you could do and what you couldn't do. Fantastic. Dr. Gelb, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. There's so many things we didn't get to, but I know you uh, have other places to go today. We've been speaking with Dr. Leslie Gelb on the impact of the economy and projections of power. If you enjoyed this conversation, look an inch higher or lower on Apple iTunes, and you'll see the other 50 or so uh, shows we've done. Um, Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ritholtz. I want to thank Mike Batnick, my head of research, for helping us out. Uh, Charlie Vollmer is our producer, and our engineer today is Matt Ryan. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Your industry is unique. It faces its own challenges and risks that set it apart. That means choosing just any insurance company just won't cut it. At The Hartford, we take pride in knowing the ins and outs of your industry and help provide solutions that suit how you do business, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. At The Hartford, we don't just talk about specialization, we live it. Learn how The Hartford can help your business at thehartford.com. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.